also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. The Martha was comforted about, comforted about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Bid her, command her therefore that she help me. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful or, or worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. Mary hath chosen that good part or that best part, which shall not be taken away from her. Every day we, we hear so many different things. I think one of the hallmarks of our, of our world today is just sort of the constant noise. It's very rare that we are just still and we are just quiet and we just pause and listen. We're bombarded with, with words. You, turn, you get up in the morning, you, you maybe turn on the TV and get the, you know, the, the, the morning news. You download a podcast and listen to it on the way to work or tune the radio to just be playing in the background. Maybe during your lunch break, you catch a, catch a part of your favorite talk show or you scroll Facebook or scan Twitter, just words that are either in print or that are being spoken just all the time, hearing words and hearing noise. We, they call this the information age. We have at our fingertips, in our pockets, on our smartphones, access to more information than at any other time in, in, in history. I think there probably would have been people looking forward to that, being like, man, this will be awesome. People in 2020 will be so smart. They'll know all these things. We'll have all this technology. Imagine what we'll do. And we go on there and, like, look up cat videos and, you know, make memes. Like, yep, there, there we go. Um, while you're at work, you maybe have conversations with coworkers at home. You, you talk with your spouse over a meal. All differing levels of communication. But, but words and so much that is coming at, a, coming, coming at us all the time. And listen, if we're not careful... We may miss out on what is crucially important because we're just being sort of bombarded and swallowed up with just so much information. Just as a case in point, chances are if you jumped onto your, your, your social media today, you saw something about a, a horrific war that is happening in Ukraine. Maybe the next post was some little cartoon just making light about some other event. The next one maybe is a picture of somebody's dog. Then there's another post about something very serious we just have this jumble of things that are very serious and things that are very trivial, all jumbled together. And if we're not careful, everything can feel serious or everything can feel trivial, and we won't have any way to tell the difference, and everything gets flattened out. Even more insidiously, we can't tell the difference between what is true and what is false. Uh, that somebody takes a picture, throws, a, throws some kind of words on it, oh, that must be true, let me go ahead and just share. misinformation, all these things going on. If we're not careful, we can take the word of our favorite talk show or cable program as gospel truth. If we're not careful, we can be like clay on a potter's wheel, and our values can be unconsciously shaped by the forces of our world. You, you walk into the mall, there is a message that is being declared to you through the advertisements, almost said advertisements, advertisements, that's how we say it here in this country. Uh, you turn on TV, the commercials are preaching some kind of a gospel to you. Just we're being catechized all the time by the world around us. And we may not even realize it. There are messages and values that are embedded into, into TV shows and into to, to programming and schools and education. We're told what to buy. We're, we're, and by the way, you're not even sold a product. If you watch commercials, pay attention. They're not actually trying to sell you a product. They're trying to sell you a lifestyle, right? Like, hey, you'll be cool like these people if you, you, you eat this or put this cream on your face or wear these clothes. In all of this noise around us, all of this din around us, 
We need to know what is most important. We need a, a filter, a grid to filter out the things that are bad and give us what is true and right. We need a, a lens through which we look at the world. We need a set, set of glasses to put on to help us see clearly what is happening, uh, what is true, what is false, what is important, what is unimportant, what is trivial, what is crucial. We need to be able to do sort of triage and decide, hey, this is crucial, this here maybe is less important. Now, what does that have to do with this, this text? This text is calling us to hear the word of God. Now, we get the example of Mary. She's sitting at the feet of Jesus. She is listening. She's absorbing. She's soaking in the word of God. And Jesus said, that's the one thing that is needful. So you hear and treasure my word, my truth, my message. You see, it's acceptable for us to to maybe, you know, visit, if you want this analogy, to go visit books and talk shows and podcasts. But we need to live in the Word of God. This is where our mail needs to come. This is where home needs to be in God's Word. It's okay to occasionally sip from the the fountains of other sources of knowledge. But we need to swim in the Bible. We should be informed about current events. But we must become experts in eternal truth. It's a dangerous thing when we are more informed about current events and football scores and political situations than we are with the timeless, eternal, unchanging truths of God's word. And what this text tells us is that even good things, what Martha was doing in this story, she's making dinner. That's a great thing to do. Jesus needed to eat. He's human. If he doesn't eat, he's not going to be able to do what he needs to do. It's a good thing that she's doing, but it slowly made its way up to the most important Basically, here's the call of this text this morning, is that we reorient our priorities to where hearing and heeding the word of God is most important to us, where the word of God is at the top of our wisdom pyramid. And other sources are taken in light of that. So we're going to walk through the scenes of this text. There's really four unfolding scenes. We're just going to walk through these verses. But don't lose sight of the main point of the passage. The main point of the passage is not... Oh, sit and just contemplate and stare out the window. The main point is that we listen and hear the word of God, just as we are doing right now. Thank you, by the way, for being here to hear the word of God. So the first scene we see in verse 38 is what I'm just calling a generous invitation. It's a generous invitation. So it says, as they went, they're on their way to Jerusalem. He entered a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. We know from John's gospel that the name of this village is Bethany. And it's actually just a couple of miles from Jerusalem. Uh, I may have mentioned this in the past, but what we have going on in Luke 9 to 19 is this journey to Jerusalem. It's not necessarily fully chronological. More than likely, this actually comes much later, just before the triumphal entry. But it's pulled forward in the narrative here on purpose to be arranged thematically. It goes right between the story of the Good Samaritan that tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves... We now get the story that talks about how we are to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those twin duties, loving God, loving neighbor, put side by side. And it's going to be followed up with a discussion about prayer. That's going to be one of the ways we express our love for God. So it's, it's, it's important that we see, this is not just put here because it was the next thing that happened. It's put here in the story because it shows us what it is to love God. We love God by hearing his word and by engaging with him in prayer. That, that's going to be the, the, the point of this text and, and the text we'll look at next week. So what's going on with this generous invitation? This woman named Martha received him into her house. The fact that she's named and not Mary. By the way, they've got a brother whose name is, what, Lazarus. He's going to feature prominently in John's gospel. 
Martha is likely the owner of this house. She's the one who's making the invitation. She's the one who's making dinner. She, in fact, the name Martha means something along the terms of like the mistress. She's the mistress of the house. Maybe she is a widow. Her spouse has died. She's been left with the house. Perhaps she's even of some means. She's one of these women who are su- supporting the ministry of Jesus Christ. But what I want you to understand here, based on what we see in John's gospel, John chapter 11, the, the raising of Lazarus, and John chapter 12, Mary and Martha were not just other followers of Jesus. They're not just like this big crowd of thousands of people, and they just happen to be two of them, and they are lucky to score, the, you know, score Jesus for dinner. These were friends of Jesus. Jesus refers to these fam- this family as his friends. There is a close relationship. This invitation into their home was an expression of genuine friendship. When I say a generous invitation, this is a, an expression of friendship. Having a meal in the ancient world was not just about like, hey, your tummy needs filled, come and eat with me. But it was, it was an expression of solidarity and of fellowship and of communion and even of covenant. This is an expression of genuine love. You see, having a meal with this family was a renewal of a deep friendship. Maybe every year when Jesus went to Jerusalem for Passover, he stayed in Bethany for a few days. This was a a renewal of a close relationship. This is what's interesting to me. Here's Jesus, who is very God of very God. He is the second person of the Trinity. From eternity past, he has enjoyed fellowship with God the Father and with God the Holy Spirit. Yet here he is on this earth as a human being, living the perfect, sinless human life, and Jesus had and needed friends. If the Son of God, the perfect, sinless Son of God, had friends and enjoyed friendships, how much more do you and I need genuine friends? One of the tragedies of the the pandemic is how we've sort of become isolated. Studies have been done to show that men in particular don't have friends anymore. Dudes aren't hanging out with each other and just being friends and having conversations and talking to each other, just kind of closing off. And where, where are they turning? Running to the Internet and getting into these chat rooms and getting sucked up into these weird views and extremism and whatnot. We need real friendships. And you say, where do I find them? Maybe look around this room. This would be a great place to start in finding real and genuine friends, starting from the standpoint of we love and know Jesus. This, this invitation also expressed support. I mentioned a a moment ago that Jesus doesn't eat. He can't do his ministry. In in Luke chapter 9, verse 58, we find out that there were people who did not welcome Jesus. Um, There were the Samaritans, and they wouldn't support him and have him over for dinner. Jesus said in in Luke 9, verse 58, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. He lived his life on dependence on the Father, and his needs were met through women and through men, people like Mary and Martha, meeting his needs. This is genuine support. This is, this is putting it out there to support this, this individual who very soon will be a crucified and rejected rabbi. The term is translated received in our, in our verse, Luke 10, verse 38. It's more than just, oh, hey, come on over. But this is the idea of welcoming him into their house. This is a hospitality term. This is, a, this is about entertaining him as a guest and, and welcoming him with arms wide open. So he's, unlike the Samaritans, Mary and Martha eagerly, eagerly welcome Jesus into their home. This is more than a social nicety. This is an expression of support. Now, this theme of hospitality, by the way, has shown up earlier in Luke 10. When Jesus sends the 72 out, remember what he said to them? He says, okay, go into different houses, and whatever they put in front of you, you enjoy that. God uses hospitality to further his mission. Just give you this reference for, for you to look up later, 3 John 8. John commends the the church that he's writing to for showing hospitality to missionaries, that we get to enter into the work of God 
by showing hospitality, giving tangible and financial and physical support to those who proclaim his truth. This is an expression of love. What Martha does here, I think we often just kind of run over, like, oh, Martha, she's bad, Mary, she's good. But let's not lose sight. What Martha is doing here is incredibly commendable. She is sacrificing to have Jesus. And don't forget this, Jesus has got at least 12 guys who are coming along with him. So all of a sudden, her house is going to be invaded by 13 hungry men, right? Like, how many of you would be like, hey, Sunday lunch, you know, after church? I'm going to have 13 people over. I'm going to have half the church over for lunch. Like, short notice, here they are. They're hungry. They want food. Give it to me now, right? This is, this, she's really making quite a sacrifice. She's got to run around to the market, go buy the groceries, come home, get the table set, get everything ready. And by the way, doing hospitality in the, in the ancient Middle Eastern world, this is not, you, you don't just go down to the local McDonald's and grab a bunch of Happy Meals for everybody. This has got to be elaborate. This has got to be perfect. This has got to be right. There's going to be multiple courses. There might even be people from the town who are going to show up because this noted rabbi is going to be there. This is a big deal. Throughout the New Testament, we find out that hospitality... Showing hospitality is an expression of Christian love. And I'm noting this because, again, what's going to happen later on, Jesus is going to say, hey, what Mary's doing is the better part, and Martha, you need to get your priorities right. Let's not lose sight of that what she's doing is important, and we should emulate her. Romans 12 and verse 13 tells us that we should show hospitality to the saints. 1 Peter 4 9 says that we should show hospitality, get this, without grudging, without a sense of I'm being really put upon to do this, but delighting in doing it. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 2 says that it is required for bishops to show hospitality, to be given to hospitality. To have, the word is, it means literally a love of strangers. So if you think, oh, I show hospitality, I have my family over. That's not actually hospitality. Hospitality would be having people over that you wouldn't normally have over. Think about through the, who are in our church family, people in our church family. Who have you not gotten to know well over the last four or five years? Man, I don't really know this family really well. That's what you need to have over. Right? That's what you need to, 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 to build relationships with. If we simply love those who love us and, and reach out to those who already know us, we don't do any more than the publicans do, Matthew 5. Right? Don't do any more than what lost people would do. We're called to more than that. So what if we as a church family made it our point, made it our priority to welcome one another into our homes? Think about how this could strengthen the unity and, the, and further the mission of our church. What if we as a church made it happen to say, okay, every Sunday after church we're going to have somebody over, or Tuesday nights, or we're, we're, once a month we're going to set up coffees with someone. We're going to go out of our way to practice hospitality. This is an important note in the text. There's a generous invitation here. We must hasten on to see, see the second scene, because this here is the most important aspect of this text. So we see a generous invitation in verse 38, but verse 39, we see an attentive audience, an attentive audience. So here's Martha. She's inviting Jesus. That's commendable. But verse 39 says, and she had a sister called Mary. Mary's probably the younger of the two. We don't know, but it seems that just the order and the priority of who's mentioned first, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. Here's Martha getting the meal ready. Here's Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus. One way we could even render this, the, 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 the tense of that word heard, it's not just she listened once, it was good, check the box, but it's the idea she's actively engaged. She was hearing, she was listening, she is absorbing the word. She's soaking it all in like a sponge. This is not just, okay, I'm going to dutifully listen here and nod and go, hmm, that's nice, while her mind is thinking about something else. No, she's engaged, she's focused, she's dialed in. She's like, I need this, I want what, this, what Jesus has to say. Understand this, this might, they may not have seen Jesus for a year, and so getting his message, this is special. This is, this is a privilege. 
In contrast to Martha's devoted hospitality, we find Mary sitting serenely at the Savior's feet. Now, what's going on with her sitting at the feet of Jesus? Other passages like Luke 8, verse 35, and Acts 22, verse 3, the idea of sitting at someone's feet meant you are taking up the posture of a disciple, of a learner. That they, They're here, and you're here, and you are learning from them. They're the authority. You're the one who is in the place of being the pupil. This is a, a, a place, a, a recognition of her humble status. This is a recognition of Jesus' knowledge and his authority. A lot of people, we have a hard time with this because we think that we're the authority. Now, now we'd never go out and be like, hey, I know better than Jesus. But the way we live our lives, we think we know better than Jesus. We come along and say, hey, I know what the Bible says here. Maybe we don't even care what the Bible says. We haven't taken time to study what the Bible says. But I'm going to go ahead and go do this over here. What if we said, what Jesus says to us in his word, this is going to be what is going to be governing. This is going to be what is going to be ultimate. What the word says we're going to do. That's scary. I'm going to risk everything on what the Bible says. I'm going to take risks based on what the Bible promises. So she sat. Now this is interesting. In the ancient world, it's kind of rare for a rabbi to have a female disciple. There were even some things that were written in the, in the Mishnah of the Talmud that would say things like, hey, giving the Torah to a woman, that's, that's, that's a bad idea. Back in the kitchen, the men will learn the Bible. Jesus is doing something that is, that is unusual and that is crossing boundaries by saying, Mary, she can sit in the place of disciple. She can learn the word of God. She needs this. Men and women need the Bible Somewhere along the way, in sort of like Christian publishing, this idea came out that sort of only men need theology. And then there are these women's Bible studies that are just flat out insulting, right? I see some of these women's Bible studies that are just theological pablum. They're just just so shallow. Now, not all of them, but so many of them are just like, men, yeah, they need theology and exegesis in the Bible. And then women, here's some nice things about like thinking about your self-image and losing weight. And, and you're like, no, you need the word. We need the word of God. All of us, men, women, children, not something less. We need, we need the word. So she's sitting, absorbing Jesus' word. So don't picture the sort of the, you know, the, the artist, the you know, Middle Ages image here is, here's Mary, and she's got this dreamy look on her eyes and a little halo around her head, and just sort of, wistfully staring off into the distance in this meditative state. Some preachers during, especially the Middle Ages, say this is the example of we all need to go off into monasteries and just live a life of contemplation. And contemplation and silence is better than action. That's not the lesson here. Jesus is not saying, oh, you don't need to make dinner, just sit here and, and, and do nothing. Remember two weeks ago we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan? The Good Samaritan went and did things. He was active and he's commended for that. So this is not about... Sitting is better than serving, but rather this is saying listening to the word is most important. We hear the word and then we act on the word, right? Our love for Jesus will fuel our love for other people. If we love him, we'll do what? We'll keep his commandments. There is a priority. There is an order. So here she is soaking it in, hanging on his every word. Now this, makes, this means there's something incredibly significant about her. Back up just a couple of pages to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8, Jesus is teaching, verse 9. His family shows up. They can't get in the house because there's so many people. It's like this huge crowd crush of people. They can't get to Jesus. Luke 8, verse 20, they told him by certain, which said, thy mother and thy brethren stand outside wanting to see you. 
Your, your family's here, Jesus. And Jesus says this in verse 21. My mother and my brethren are those which hear the word of God and do it. So here's Mary, normally would be an outcast, would normally be an outsider. Jesus is saying she's family because she hears the word. And that's awesome. Those who hear and treasure and do the word, Jesus says, you're family. That's, that is awesome. He, he's just taking the whole idea of family and elevating it. She's an active and engaged and eager listener. She's like the good soil in the parable of the soils. Remember, there's the ones that are, there's the weeds that come up, and there's the rocky soil, and then there's the good ground that just wants the word. Does that describe you where you say, I want the word? I want the scripture. I want God's truth. I, I don't want theological pablum. I don't want theological baby food. I want the scripture. Give me Jesus. Is that you? Do you long to hear his word? Do you open the Bible throughout the week? Or does the Bible sit on a shelf, collect dust, and then Sunday you, go, you grab it and, and off you come to church? I'm glad that you're here. And coming to church is a great place to start. I will say this. If you say, I, I treasure the word of God, but you never come to church, that's a problem. Right, this is where you should be hearing the word. We sing the word and pray the word and preach the word, read the word. We're going to show the word in the, uh, taking the Lord's Supper. Hearing the word of God is not less than coming to church. It is more than that. Right? So, yes, come to church, but also open and meditate and think about and read and study and treasure the word throughout the week. Think about all the things we hear in a given day. Uh, just a quick little, you know, I read the Bible, the verse of the day on the Bible app. That's not going to cut, cut through all the noise that we're going to hear throughout the week. i just be blunt with you for a second. I am afraid that too many Christians' attitudes and viewpoints are more shaped by Tucker Carlson than by Jesus Christ. Our view on the world, are, are we put more stock in the opinions of unregenerate pundits than in the eternal truth of God's word? Now, I'm not saying that other people don't have anything valuable to say. But I am afraid that Christians, are, our views are more shaped by what we read and what we hear than, than, than what the word of God says. It should bother us when we're getting more TV than we are getting God's word. It should bother us when what we think and believe and think about the world is not through the, 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 the lens of scripture. It's through the lens of what some angry pundit on TV or on the radio might tell us to think it might be wise to limit the intake of TV, to maybe log off Twitter or put some time limits on Facebook and open the Bible. I'm not saying don't be informed, but I am saying this should be the priority. This should be the most important, most powerful shaping influence in our lives. And as Kent Hughes says, it is impossible to be profoundly influenced by that which you do not know. Do you know the Bible? Do you treasure the Bible? Do you believe the Bible? And not just a few verses here or there, but an integrated worldview that is biblical. Do you know why you believe what you believe? Now, absorbing the word always leads to applying the word. So don't get the idea that Mary is just sitting here listening and that's just sitting and doing nothing is better than going around and serving. We need people who serve and we need people who listen. Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. James 1 warns us, don't just be hearers of the word, but be what? Doers, right? That the point of hearing God's word is so that we can apply it to our lives and apply it to our worldview and apply it to our decision making, but to be profoundly influenced and shaped by the word to where our involuntary responses when stuff comes up are biblical, where we don't have to think, oh, what does the Bible say? No, we know what the Bible says, and it has become part of who we are, and we treasure it. Psalm 1 
just proclaims the blessedness of the person who this is true. It says, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. He's not influenced by, by, by the lost, by the world, by the unregenerate, by the false, falsity of the world. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Does that not sound appealing? To be someone who's like a tree that's not swayed by everything that comes along and driven away. He says the wicked are like the chaff driven away by the wind. The righteous like a tree planted. The roots are deeply in the water of God's word. But it doesn't just say they read the word, but they delight they delight it. This goes to our affections. Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to the word of Jesus because she loves Jesus, right? It's impossible to love Jesus without loving his word, without loving what he says. So this is underscoring the importance of a relationship with the master that motivates obedience to the master. We can obey without loving, and I think that's what happened to Martha. She kind of lost sight of I'm doing this because I love Jesus, and I'm just kind of doing it. While we can obey without loving, we cannot love without obeying, right? Genuine love for Jesus will always lead to obedience to Jesus. So again, just to be clear, the point is not that monastic contemplation is the priority, but rather that attentive listening and saturating ourselves in the word is the priority. So Martha's not wrong to serve, but she is wrong to be so wrapped up in her serving, that she stopped listening and treasuring the word. Are you like Jeremiah, who says, I regard God's word as, more, as greater than my necessary food? Do you, like Jesus, understand that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God? Are you like Peter, who says, to whom then shall we go, for thou hast the words of life? If you do believe that, you'll seize every opportunity to hear the word. You'll be like... Hey, if they're preaching the word at Cloverleaf, man, I, I want to be there. It's not going to be, oh, let me see if I can slot it in. No, it's going to be given in my schedule. If, it's an impo- if, you, if you treasure God's word, you'll say, I want to read it and study it throughout the week and get into it and understand it and take avail, avail myself of the resources that are out there. This is the, the heart of this text, a call for us to be that attentive audience, to love Jesus so much that we treasure his word. Now, we get a contrast in verse 40. This brings us to our third scene. There's a contrast here between Mary, who's that attentive audience, and now we get Martha, who's this overwhelmed hostess. What Martha's doing is is well-meaning, it's well-intentioned, but look at verse 40. But Martha, in contrast, was cumbered about with much serving. She's getting the dinner, getting the table set, all these things, and came to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? Bitter, therefore, that she helped me. So we see Martha's service, and there's something commendable about it, but the priorities have been inverted. This is a portrait of inverted priorities. She lost sight of the important or of the ultimate and got focused on what was just important. So what was the result of priorities getting out of whack, of the, the urgent driving out the most important? Well, look at how, she, look at how she's portrayed. She's, she's marked by anxiety, by worry, even by anger. Like, make my sister come out. And even this judgmental attitude. Do you ever find yourself just consumed by anxiety? you find yourself consumed by worry? Do you find yourself consumed by frustration and anger about what other people are doing or not doing and sort of judging and and all these things? Could it be that that flows from your priorities being inverted? 
Could it be that you have taken sort of what you, what you like to do and how you like to serve, and you've made that more important than the word of Jesus? Worry often flows out of inverted priorities. Anxiety feeds on inverted priorities. You see, you can either be ruled by the word or you can be ruled by worry. But you can't be ruled by both. When we're ruled by the word, that means we are ruled by the promises of Christ. We're ruled and nourished by the promises of Jesus and, and the, the, his presence. Worry cannot coexist where the word is being treasured. Now, we all, it's a daily battle, right, where we start the day, treasure the word, and worry comes out, and then it comes creeping back in, and when there's this battle. That's, that's normal for us as Christians, this battle between trusting God and trusting ourselves. But worry and the word don't coexist. So you can imagine the scene, right? Dinner is getting close to dinner time. Jesus maybe showed up like an hour before. Martha's still running around. She's a whirlwind of activity. The table's getting set. The meal is on the stove. Uh, trips are going back and forth to the market. She needs to go get some more tomatoes. So off she scurries, and here she comes back again. And once Jesus had arrived, I, I'm sure Mary was helping him before, but once Jesus arrived, Mary's like, hey, the master's here. I want to go be with him. Mary pulls away to sit at Jesus' feet. But Martha, I think being the consummate perfectionist, I don't know, but I'm reading this into seeing this here, she keeps bustling around the house. Everything's got to be just perfect. It's Jesus after all. We can't have a, a sloppy meal for Jesus. This has got to be just right. Maybe the house he stayed at up towards Samaria, maybe they really put on a feast. I've got to one-up that. I've got to show them that I, that I love him more than those bozos down the street. The language here is quite vivid. The word cumbered about means to be pulled away or dragged away. Just the priorities of getting the dinner on the table have grabbed a hold of her heart and are yanking her one way and yanking her another way away from Jesus. Now, Martha would have loved to be at Jesus' feet, but she's thinking, I've got to get dinner on the table. The, this is more important than just the luxury of sitting at Jesus' feet doing nothing. The tyranny of the urgent had arrested her. Can, can, can you relate to that? I think we can all relate to that at times where just the, the urgent, I've got to do this now, gets in the way of the word, gets in the way of relationship with Christ, gets in the way of prayer. I think her frenzy is understandable. I think we can be sympathetic to Martha here. I think we can relate. I think her motivation is laudable. I think she started with, I love Jesus. I've got to get a good meal ready for him. But her priorities began to be questionable. She became so transfixed with what was on the table, she forgot about who was at the table. So we see this demand that she makes in, in the second half of verse 40. She, she comes in. She's finally had, a, had enough of it. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me alone to serve? You, you don't care, Jesus. Wow, there, there, there's some anger in that. This is an angry demand. Now, I can picture before this, she's going to kind of do the whole, like, dropping the hint thing, right? You, you, know, how this, you know how this works. She's going to make a few extra trips through the living room back to the kitchen to see if she can kind of catch Mary's eye to be like, I can use some help here. Maybe she's shooting some deadly looks towards Mary or trying to catch Jesus' eyes. She's banging the dishes together in the pots and making sure everybody knows, I'm having a really rough time in the kitchen. She's letting out audible sighs. and ah, This is rough, but I, I need a hand. You know the routine, the passive-aggressive, don't mind me, I'm just doing everything for everyone else. It's okay, you just sit there. That's kind of the mentality, right? Uh, none of you do that ever, right? Finally, she storms into the living room or whatever the, 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 the house looked like. She's fuming. She's running herself ragged to make dinner perfect, and here's Mary doing nothing. She sees in Mary lazy in action. It's always like Mary to try to steal the spotlight and get out of work. Yeah, you know, there's got to be some history here. And Jesus, you know, for all the good that Jesus does, he's enabling bad behavior. 
Jesus is just being so naive here, he can't see that she's being lazy and trying to get out of work. There's a lot of accusation wrapped up in this. Both Mary and Jesus needed a piece of her mind, and she gives it. Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? You hear some self-pity in there? Poor me, Jesus, don't you feel sorry for me? I'm, I'm running around, and I'm sweaty, and it's hot, and the pot's boiling over. Don't you care? Don't you care how busy I'm getting Mary in here to help? Self-pity is one of the most sneaky of the sins, the, the self-sins. There's self-righteousness. You know, there's pride. Self-pity, though, doesn't feel like sin. I feel like a victim, and so I can sit here and poor me, and woe is me. That is sin. You know why I can say that? Is we've taken our eyes off of Jesus, and we put it on ourselves. Rather than him being the center of the universe, it's us. Think about Copernicus, right? He, he makes this astounding discovery that not the earth, but the sun is at the center of the universe. Everyone's like, no, no, that can't be true. We've got to be the center of the universe. How quickly do we fall back into that sort of pre-Copernican idea? I'm at the center of the... It's not Jesus, it's me. And I feel sorry that poor me is, is being so hard done by. Careful. Careful. It's one thing to be hurt by the situations of life. Life can be very painful. It's not a sin to be hurt. It's not a sin to be wronged. In fact, you can often be the object of other people's sins. But it is a sin to be swallowed up with self-pity to the point that I'm no longer focusing on Jesus or on others. It justifies the self-focus because after all, I've been hurt, and so therefore I can do no wrong. So Mary's frustrations boiled over. Her demand implicates both Mary and Jesus. The sinless son of God she is insinuating is somehow being complicit with this selfishness. Her exhaustion, her anxiety, driven by some kind of pride, has brought her to a place where she's critical of the very one she's ostensibly serving. I'm doing this for Jesus, but I'm really frustrated at Jesus right now for, for not getting Mary in here to help. Her priorities are skewed. You ever find yourself there? Find yourself where you're just constantly frazzled, constantly overwhelmed, routinely anxious, regularly critical of other people and what they're doing and saying or not doing and saying, could it be that the priorities have been switched? Could it be that less important things have taken the place of the most important things? Could it be that the cares of this life have choked the word? Could it be that what you're seeing on cable TV has become, oh no, this is so horrible and scary that the life-giving truths of God's word have been sort of silenced under the din of all the noise. You see, without clear biblical priorities, we will never know how to say no to something. One of the hardest things in the world is to be able to say, no, I'm not going to do that. You can only be able to say, you know how to say yes and no if you have a clear grid of priorities. And the word of God gives us those priorities. When we don't have priorities, everything is, is as important as everything else and our schedules are overwhelmed, and our to-do lists are overwhelmed, and there's just all this stuff going on. We need biblical priorities. I think Martha got to the point where she thought that her contribution was crucial. right? Sort of like a, a fly that sits up on the roof of the football stadium and is thinking, man, I'm really putting on a good show here. Like the flea that's riding the chariot wheel and says, look at all the dust that I'm kicking up. Um, our contributions to the kingdom of God are as necessary as a flea on a chariot wheel, right? God does not need us. 
for us to sit here and be like, man, Cloverleaf Baptist Church will only be able to continue if I keep doing what I'm doing. No, God never needed us. And I think Mary forgot that. We come to our final scene in verses 41 and 42. We get a gracious rebuke. I think Jesus knows Martha's heart that it started in the right place and things have just gotten out of she, She's not in rebellion against God. She's not gone off into the world and apostatized, but just kind of veering off just a little bit in the wrong direction. He's going to pull her back. Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. He acknowledges, I know you're busy, Martha. I know you're overwhelmed. There's compassion there. There's understanding. There's, there's em- empathy. But there's also correction. But one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. In the face of Mary's sort of snippy demand, she's very snippy, right? Get Mary in here, and what are you doing just out here sitting around chit-chatting when dinner needs to be cooked? Jesus does not get defensive. He does not lash out. He doesn't shout back, say, you listen here, Martha, I'm God's son. How dare you question? No, he doesn't do that. So I won't be here long. You'll regret it in just a week. I'll be going to the cross, and then you'll be sorry that you didn't see. He doesn't do that either. He doesn't guilt trip her. He speaks gently, Martha, Martha. Just repeating her name. He knows her. He knows her situation. He knows her overwhelmed state. And he speaks gently and kindly to her. He says, I see your frustration. You're careful about many things. You're you're, you're worried about so many things, about the place settings and the garnish and the dishes and the courses and the meal and all of those things. The the many things have crowded out the one thing. The the good things have crowded out the best thing. She lost sight of the one thing. He says, okay, Mary has chosen that good part. There's one thing that's needful and it's a relationship with me. Paul understood that. In Philippians 3, he says, this one thing I do Forgetting those things which are behind, but reaching forth to the things that are before, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You say, what is that? He tells us in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. For Paul, there was a one thing passion to know Christ and to make him known, and everything else falls into place after that. It's not either you serve or you sit at the feet of Jesus. Rather, it is you sit at the feet of Jesus so you can effectively serve him. You fall in love with him so you can obey him. Martha had lost sight of the one thing. She had prioritized the meal, while Mary had prioritized the master. Jesus, in his final months, perhaps his final days, and more than anything, what he was after was fellowship with his dear friends. The quality of the meal was far secondary to the quality of the fellowship. Did you notice how much of Martha's speech was full of me talk? Have her come here and help me, and I'm overwhelmed, and look at what I'm doing, Jesus. The problem was not that she served Jesus, it was that she forgot Jesus and focused on herself in her serving. We can do that, right? You begin to teach a Sunday school class or get involved with music or serve in the security or whatever, different aspects of church, and you do it initially, I want to do this to serve Jesus, but then over after, after time comes along, what I do is more important. This is my area of ministry and no one better touch this. I've seen that before in churches where it becomes sort of a little turf war. This is my area. Do not enter my little, you know, my little turf. No, no, no. We serve Jesus for his sake. You see, at the bottom of anxiety is looking to ourselves rather than Christ. We can become so concerned about what we're doing for Jesus that we lose sight of Jesus. 
So Martha prioritized the meal. Mary prioritized the word. Jesus comes back in verse 42. But one thing is needful. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Like, yes, you will die physically if you don't eat, but you will die spiritually if you don't have the word, right? Uh, Clear priorities. Mary has chosen the good part. She's chosen the best part. And it wasn't the place of service. It was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Now, both sitting and serving are needful. But Mary had the right priorities. Think about this church. We've got a beautiful building, don't we? It's beautiful facilities that God has blessed us with. We've got a beautiful piece of property. You do realize, though, Cloverleaf Baptist Church can exist and carry out our mission without the building. Cloverleaf Baptist Church can carry out the ministry without a sound system. Cloverleaf Baptist Church can carry out our ministry without any programs whatsoever. Cloverleaf Baptist Church can carry out our ministry without all of the bells and whistles and and fancy things and websites. Those are all good things. We can do it without even coffee in the foyer, right? As wonderful as that is, we can do ministry. we We can preach the gospel without that. But what we cannot do without is the word of God. Right? The only thing that we have to offer the city of Mobile, the only thing we have to offer you here today is God's word. That's it. This is not a social club. It's not, hey, this is just a great place to make friends. Though I hope we make friends here. You can go anywhere. You can go to the, go to the local clubs of different kinds to, to do that. But the one thing we have to offer is the word of God. That's it. That's the only thing of eternal value that we can give to this world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word of God is central when we gather. It's not just something we tack on at the end and be like, oh, quick, here's a Bible verse. No, we want the entire gathering to be shaped by and centered upon the word of God. It's the word, not entertainment, that is central. It's the word, not music, that is central. It is the word, not a spectacle, that is central. It is the word, not our experiences, that is central. It is the, the, the one thing we need. Think about our brothers and sisters in Christ in the Ukraine. I would imagine that sooner or later, some of them are going to be driven out of their buildings. They won't be able to do church. Some of them are going to be meeting down on subways over the coming weeks as bombs are falling and missiles are raining down on them. The one thing that's needful is the word of God. And you know what they're asking for right now? They're saying, we need more Bibles. They're not saying, hey, we need a, a, a better scheme to build a cooler worship team. No, we need more Bibles. When the bombs start falling and when the lights go out, what do we need? We need the word. Would to God that we would learn to prioritize these things now. So when that does happen, we are prepared. He says, that which she's chosen shall not be taken away from her. There's an eternal reward, Jesus says in verse 42, for those who treasure and trust his word. There are eternal dividends that are paid. It is always worthwhile. you You will not come to judgment day and say, man, I went to church too much. You're not going to come to Judgment Day and say, why did I spend so much time praying and reading the Bible? Like, I should have played more golf. No, nobody, nobody says that. Nobody's going to get to their deathbed and say, man, I wish I had watched you know, more cable TV. Now, that's not going to be what we're going to be. We'll say, I wish I had invested more in knowing God's word and preparing myself for eternity. You see, one day we will stand before Jesus. We will stand before him. Our lives will be judged. 
And ultimately, why does the word matter? Because 2 Timothy 3, verse 15 says, the word is able to make you wise unto salvation. We need to be saved and delivered from our sin and our spiritual death. And there's no other message out there except the gospel of Jesus, the good news that Jesus died for sinners and was buried and rose again. That's the one message that can deliver you from hell and deliver you from your sin. Your good works will not save you. Your good intentions will not save you. All of our goodness are as filthy rags before God, the Bible tells us. Why is the word important? The word is important because it is like a mirror that reveals us to ourselves where we see how sinful we are, and it is a window that reveals Jesus to us. It calls us to put our trust and our confidence in Christ and him alone. If you're here this morning... You have never bowed the knee to Jesus. You have never been born again. You've never repented of your sins. I would urge you, I would beg you today to turn to Christ. It's not just, okay, I'm going to start reading the Bible. Turn to Jesus as your Savior and learn to love the Jesus of the Word. It's not just a religious duty. I'm going to go start reading the Bible. But my heart being changed in such a way that I love him and I delight in him. In just a minute, we're going to be going through the Lord's table. We're going to be partaking of communion.